You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Coaches would say that this guy Dobler is kind of dirty. You've got to watch out for him. And by a coach telling his players that, he was already playing into my hands. Former NFL offensive guard Conrad Dobler. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. The NFL regular season kicks off tomorrow. Now by next February, we'll, we'll have a new Super Bowl champion. And we'll have another year's worth of great stories about exciting plays and thrilling finishes. But for now, for today, let's rewind back to 1988. In my interview with a 10-year NFL veteran, three-time Pro Bowl player, who acquired a reputation for, well, let's say, underhanded tactics on the field. During his six years with the Cardinals, two with the Saints, and two with the Bills, Conrad Dobler's opponents, well, they started calling him dirty, a dirty player. So in 1988, when he wrote his memoir about his years in the NFL, what do you think he called it? Its title was, They Call Me Dirty. So here now, from 1988, Conrad Dobler. You sit there and you talk about pro football's dirtiest play, and I guess looking back at it, I uh, was uh, somewhat uh, dirty. But you know, the the game's kind of violent, and the game is kind of uh, rough, and the game is kind of dirty. I think that the the press, the news media, the printed media, and also uh, the radio people and stuff, dirty sounds a lot better than aggressive or violent or robust or terms like that. So I think you can get some more better sensationalism out of uh, dirty. And they came up with that. I like meanest or something like that, but they ended up dirty. So that's the way it is. You would have thought I would have got a, you know, a soap commercial or something out of it, but uh, I, that hasn't worked yet. As it is, you do commercials for a, what, what it was a Budweiser, right? Uh, no, man, that don't be talking about that. That'll make you sick. It's Miller Light. That's right. Does it uh, does it ever bother you that maybe some, especially young kids, may know you just for your commercials, have never seen you play? Well, you know, it's an amazing thing when I when I sit there and I never realized whether advertising helped or not because I have a business of my own. And when I had finished a Miller Lite commercial and gone back to my hometown, I played 10 years in the NFL, played in three Pro Bowls. I had a pretty illustrious career, probably got more press than any other offensive lineman in the history of professional football. And I have my own book coming out. And, you know, no one really thought much about that. But I do that one Miller Lite commercial where they classify me as a troublemaker, and everyone in the world knows who I am. And I can honestly say to advertisers, whether it be radio, they want to advertise on it, whether it be television, or whether it be the printed media, that people do look at those ads. And I can tell you a point of fact that it's true, that advertising does work. Especially when you have a good-looking, warm, sensitive guy like me doing the show. <laughs> Those are great commercials. They've uh, they've been running for 16 years, and uh, they've uh, they are a great campaign, and they've worked very, very well for uh, the company I represent. And you know, not everyone gets on those commercials. You have to be you have to be a name to be asked to be on those commercials. Absolutely. In fact, I auditioned for uh, three uh, three years before they had a script that worked very well for me, and. In fact, Phil Villapiano with the Oakland Raiders, who was my roommate when we ended up being uh, teammates with the Buffalo Bills, uh, came up to New York and really wanted to see me get the commercial and brought eight of his friends up and practiced the script with me for about six hours before I went in for my audition. You know, that's what's unique about camaraderie when you play football and stuff, is to have friends like that once you get out of it that want to see you succeed. 
And that's the true thing about friendship. I think uh, when you talk about friendship, you've heard it many times. If you can go through life with five or six friends, uh, you've done very, very well. And I can honestly say that even though Phil was a defensive linebacker, uh, we became very, very good friends, and we still are to this day. So your best friends are defensive linebackers. <laughs> no, not, not a heck of a lot of them. Uh, there's a few, but not a heck of a lot of them. That's right. At what point did you become, if you want to use the word dirty, aggressive? What are we doing? Was it in high school, college? You know, basically, I, I think uh, I was obviously cut the beginning of uh, my rookie year, uh, the day before the first regular season game, which was a game against the Washington Redskins, I might add. In fact, it was funny. It was a Saturday, and we were going to play Washington on Sunday. And at that particular time in 1972, you allowed 45 men. And I had counted everyone out at practice Saturday morning because I was still there. You know, the game's Sunday. I'm still there. So I count all 40 guys, 45 guys out at practice, and I'm pretty excited. There's 45. After practice, Bill Austin, who was a coach here at Washington at one time, was the offensive line coach with St. Louis, said that Bob Holloway, who was the head coach at that time for the St. Louis Cardinals, wanted to see me. So I go up to his office thinking that he's going to congratulate me about <laughs> making the team, that he's going to maybe, better yet, he's going to tell me I'm going to start Sunday. So I go up to his office, and he says, the first thing he says is, sorry, Conrad, you got caught up in the numbers. I said, how can that possibly be? I said, I counted everyone at practice. Then there's only 45 guys. We're allowed 45 men. And Bob looked at me and said, did you count yourself? Which I <laughs> neglected to do. And I was that 46 gentleman on the team. But it did bring me back eight days later. And when I had been cut, a lot of the defensive players were happy to see me go. A lot of the offensive players, including Dan Deardorff, Tom Banks, were happy to see me go because I did make a few mistakes during that year. And they kind of laughed at me. And I came back with a different type of aggression. I kind of wanted to go back and embarrass them. I kind of really wanted to go back and take revenge on all these defensive players that were happy to see me get uh, cut. I wanted to take revenge on the guy that cut me to prove that he was wrong. I wanted to take revenge on the... Um, on the um, organization's scouting department for drafting me in the fifth round, and maybe they should have drafted me in the uh, first or second round. And I went out there with an aggression and said, if I get cut again, because I basically don't have the intestinal fortitude, the, the guts, the moxie, the talent to play in this game. I ended up starting the fourth game of the regular season that year, and I guess the rest is history. It's kind of a long story, a little bit longer than that guy from Rhode Island. But... <laughs> Do you have to be kind of a hot dog to be to become well known in the NFL? Do you have to be a Theismann? Do you have to be a Bosworth? Do you have to be somebody somebody that people will talk about that will make headlines? Well, you know, there's not a lot of characters in the NFL today. Once you get past McMahon and once you get past uh, uh, that idiot Bosworth, uh, there's not a lot of characters. You know, you go back to my days when you had myself, you had Dick Buckus, you had Ray Nischke, you had uh, uh, Kenny Stabler, you had. Uh, uh, John Matusak, uh, even just you had Otis Sistrunk, uh, Mr. Mars. You, you can go on and on and on, but I, I think you would, Bill, today you would be very hard-pressed to come up with the same amount of names that I just uh, spun off there off the top of my head. And I think, uh, I think the game is uh, it's nice to have characters out there. It certainly helps the news media, the press, the sports department to have some characters, to have some different things to write about. And basically, like I said, my reputation and stuff kind of played in 
to the type of game that I played. I played a psychological game. Um, a lot of times opposing coaches would, you know, say that this guy, Dobler, is kind of dirty. You've got to watch out for him. you got to do this. He's going to try to make you lose your poise during the course of a game. And by a coach telling his players that, he was already playing into my hands because he had that individual defensive lineman so concerned about the style of play that I was going to play that that defensive lineman could not play his own game. And once they don't play their own game, once they lose their poise, then I own them. And it's basically like every coach says at numerous times throughout the season. We've got to take our opponents out of their game plan. Well, that's the same exact thing I did with defensive linemen. It hits me that take them out of their game plan. Yeah, so many of the teams seem so well balanced that the team that's going to win is the team that has the psychological edge. Absolutely, and the, and the thing is, basically, right now the NFL has been trying to get a lot of parity throughout it, and they have achieved that. They have achieved it, and what you have right now is you have basically the game is made up of five or six mistakes, and it depends on who makes four and who makes two. Usually, the team that only made two mistakes is going to come out on top. I've got to ask you, since you're in this uh, the Super Bowl champion town, what are the chances of the Redskins repeating? Well, the Redskins uh, have a great opportunity of becoming the next dynasty. We, we went through the America's team with the Dallas Cowboys. We went through the dynasty of the, of the Minnesota Vikings, and we also went through the dynasty with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, this may be the dynasty of the 80s because we really haven't had one, so to speak, in, in the 1980s, and they may be able to pull that off. And uh, they've started off with little slaws on the sidelines for the uh, Giants-Washington uh, Redskins game on Monday night, and that was kind of a letdown. It was like there was two different teams, and I think what had happened is that Washington had played so well in the first half that they thought they were back on the same road that got them to the Super Bowl uh, the previous year. And if they can just maintain and control the football a little bit the second half, they would come out on top. Unfortunately, the Giants get paid, too, to block and tackle. And they came out there and turned the game around pretty well. So I think that was – that probably – that loss to the Giants probably is going to do more good for the Washington Redskins than anything else that might happen this season. After this short break, what Conrad Dobler missed the most about being retired from the NFL. There are now two new ways to listen to Now I've Heard Everything. Full episodes are now on YouTube. Just search for Now I've Heard Everything. And if you're on TikTok, watch for the promos we post about new episodes. Tap the link at the bottom of the video to hear the full episode. Now back to my 1988 conversation with Conrad Dobler. People, and I can speak from fact here, that when you're the top dog, when you're the good team or the bad team like the Oakland Raiders or the bad player like the Conrad <laughs> Doblers, people come gunning for you, and they're going to get you. <laughs> what do you miss most about not playing anymore? Well, I, I, I missed paydays on Monday morning. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I'd, I'd be, uh, be lying to you if I didn't say that for uh, uh, for a basic fact, uh, I guess I missed the camaraderie. I, I missed the uh, the challenge of going out there. I think the biggest thing I miss between playing football and business is so often in the business world and even in, in, in your world, you try to achieve certain things and you work to, to achieve those things. And you don't know whether you were successful or not, like in a real estate deal for sometimes like three or four months. Whereas on the football field, 
When I got done with the play in four seconds, I could go back to the huddle and I knew whether I won or lost. And the thing is, I knew immediately I got immediate self-gratification or immediate remorse. Unfortunately, in the real world, it doesn't work that way. Sometimes it takes, <laughs> it takes six months to find out that you have been doing everything wrong and nothing right, <laughs> and it is too late to correct it. <laughs> That's and that is what I miss the most about it. That's true. You know, it occurred to me, I'm, I'm wondering how many amateur psychiatrists there must be out in this country who would love to get you on the couch and get into your head and figure out why you do what you do. Well, I'm sure that there's a, uh, quite a few uh, female Amateur psychiatrist <laughs> that would like to get me on the couch. <laughs> In fact, my ex, my, my, I shouldn't say ex because she's a good lady. My former wife is getting her PhD in psychology. And um, she probably, she had mentioned to me that we might still be together. But we might have been divorced a lot sooner if I would have gone after this PhD a long time before now. And uh, she certainly wants to do her master thesis, I guess, on me. In fact, Dan Deardorff said that I should call my book Life After Lobotomy. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to call it I Get a Kick Out of You, and we decided to call it They Call Me Dirty. <laughs> I, no, it, it strikes me that there's a lot of people who'd love to find out why you like to hit people and hurt people. Well, I'm at the, uh, I, I enjoy it. You, you probably play. don't anymore, though. Or. No, I, you know, a lot of times you, you, you see a lot of these people. You have met Mean Joe Green. You have met uh, myself. You met John Matusak. You met some of these. You met Dick Buckus, Ray Nischke. You met some of the bad guys in the NFL that we've we've described and talked about. And they're all quite calm, quite decent people in the public. And I think the reason it is is because we, we have a fortunate business that we live in that we can take our aggressiveness out on the field. And what's so unique about that is that these same people that walk around that you think are so calm and so polite... They walk around here in Washington, D.C. or on Wall Street in New York in their suits and ties. They're the same guys that have their Reeboks on and their Levi's and sweatshirts that are yelling obscenities at us during the games when we come into Washington, D.C. to play or when we go into New York to play the Giants. These are the same. Uh, so we're lucky as adults, as, as, as men, that we can have something that we can take our aggression on. I think that's the nicest thing about football. And I think that's why a lot of these guys uh, that I had mentioned in public are very gentle men for the simple reason that uh, if we weren't, we would be in confrontation every waking hour of our life. I think enough is enough, and the field is where it should stay. And after the game, we're all very satisfied, win or lose, on how it came out because we knew we did everything we possibly could because we had to because people were always looking to get us, too. <laughs> Now, you know, your friend Hollywood Henderson has a very different kind of book out. His book is about how his career came to a crashing halt and how he's been off alcohol and drugs now for it's been almost five years. It's a very different kind of book, but yet it's a story that we're hearing more and more about in the NFL nowadays is drugs and alcohol. Should players be tested routinely? Should we be suspending players? Should the NFL, what are, what are we up to, 15, 12, 15, 20 players are suspended two now? More. I think it's 19 right now yeah. at this particular date. Is that, is, do you like to see that development? Well, you know, basically, the NFL has, I, I, I believe that the NFL probably has a right for the simple reason that 
they have a tremendous amount invested in this. They have a tremendous amount of payroll that they're paying $10 million to. They have a tremendous responsibility to their fans. They have a tremendous responsibility to the TV networks. I think they should make it a even type policy, such as if someone is tested, they should all be suspended from the very beginning of the year, from the very first regular season game for 30 days, and not be allowed to get out of training camp and stuff like this. All the money should be kept. No one should get paid while they're on 30-day suspension. And this investment as an owner, as, as a guy that's in business right now, I dare say that if I am paying someone a million dollars a year or $500,000 a year or $50,000 a year and I expect certain type of behavior out of him, I would certainly want that behavior. And another thing, if I expected that behavior and wanted to test them, whether it be a lie detector test or something like that, and they refuse to take it, well, then I would guess that they should find employment some other place because, uh, you know, it's the old golden rule. The man with the gold makes the rules, <laughs> and that's the way it is. Now, the thing is, like I said, it's a double-edged sword for the NFL, and it's a double-edged sword for the Players Association. Players Association, they talk about constitutional rights and things like this, which, yes, that is a uh, that is a legitimate concern. The NFL is sitting there talking about we would like to clean the game up and protect our investment. That's a very legitimate concern. And they're really trying to do something to also help the player that has these specific problems. Unfortunately, every time they do, all we get and all we hear is negative press. And it's sad because it should be a positive press, that this is a positive step, that these are positive things we're doing for the players, that after 30 days it's going to turn out positive for the individual that is suspended. Unfortunately, all we hear is negatives. I think there's enough negatives in the world. There's enough negatives that uh, are not even relate to drugs, that our kids today still need a lot of positive things to look at. It's sad that, uh, unfortunately... The best news items are negative items. Conrad Dobler died last February. He was 72. Now you can get a copy of They Call Me Dirty by Conrad Dobler by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. Now we may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. If you go to heardeverything.com, that's where you'll also hear my 1994 interview with one of those mentioned in, in this interview with Conrad Dobler, former Chicago Bears great Dick Butkus. See, that's what amazes me about this legend business, because uh, I, I just think what I did was normal. I just always felt, well, you know, this is the way you play the game. I don't think I've ever played a perfect game. I, I would never settle for it. And my 2011 interview with another former player who knew a thing or two about the violence of the NFL, former Washington Redskins Sam Huff. Football's a violent game. It's war without guns. It's a wrestling match up front, but it's also a boxing match when that guy comes through with the football, and he's got the football, and he's as big as you are, and he's got a running start. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, including now YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, she has sold millions and millions of books, 30 in the series altogether now about an amateur bounty hunter from New Jersey named Stephanie Plum. My 1994 interview with the, the book that started the whole series, One for the Money, Janet Ivanovich. That's sort of an odd thing. I'm really not a very violent person. Um, I saw 
Pulp Fiction and passed out cold on the floor. And <laughs> I, I, I can't, you know, I don't have a, a blood tolerance. And yet when I'm writing, it seems to be something entirely different. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.